please open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 9 on page 184, the Bibles provided. We're going to begin this morning by reading the first 13 verses of Joshua chapter 9. Just to recall, the last two big events in Joshua have been the, the defeat of Jericho and Ai. And obviously Ai had a big kind of hiccup in the middle with Achan's sin, but in terms of the, the, the story arc, we see people, the peoples of Canaan now responding to those two big events, the defeat of Jericho and Ai by the Lord. So listen to God's word as we begin reading with Joshua chapter 9, verse 1. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this. They gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai. They, on their part, acted with cunning and went and made ready provision and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you and where do you come from? They said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God, for we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon the king of Eshbon and to Og the king of Bashan, who live at Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provision in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. This is God's word. One of the challenges we find when we come to scriptures is our own expectations of what we should find there. It's tempting to approach God's word like it's a collection of morality tales, like we might find in Aesop's fables. So we come to it looking for the good characters and the bad characters, maybe good examples or maybe some bad examples. And if we come with that attitude, we're going to be expecting to find that in every story. Now, there's some good reasons for, for looking at the Bible that way. So the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6, he cites the example of Israel's grumbling in the wilderness and says these things were, took place as an example for us. So reading the Old Testament for examples is an is a Apostle Paul-ordained idea, a God-ordained idea. We should do that. But we should also note that he uses this example as a warning to his audience there in Corinth. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. So his examples are not just superficial examples of do this or that, but what do you worship? But it can be an overly reductive approach to the Bible to simply look for examples. 
And that's what, the, that's what this moralistic approach would do, is just reduce it to only a series of examples. But the scriptures are, first and foremost, a revelation of God himself. The scriptures are God showing us himself. And specifically, the scriptures show us God as he saves his people. And so in that light, as we come to the scriptures, we not only see who God is, we also see how God defines who his people are. So we see God and his people. That's the first thing we are to see before we're to see examples. This morning, as we look at the book of Joshua chapter 9 and this interesting story of the Gibeonites' deception, I want us to try to make sure we we don't just look for the examples. We will see some examples, but I want us first to look at what this text shows us about God and who his people are. So we're going to see two truths about God and how people misunderstand those truths. So the two truths are these. First, the Lord holds the power of life and death. The Lord holds life and death in his hands. That's the first big truth. We're not going to spend as much time on that one, but I think it's really foundational for Joshua. So the Lord holds the power of life and death. Second, the Lord is full of grace. The Lord is full of grace. So those are the two truths we'll work through, and we'll see how the people in, these, in this story interact and respond and misunderstand those two truths. So first we see that the Lord holds the power of life and death. He holds life and death in his hands. That's really the most foundational reality in Joshua, that God is the creator God, the author of life, and the judge of all people. He holds the power of life and death in his hands. We see that he's repeatedly praised or at least uh, acknowledged in Joshua as being the one who delivered Israel at the Red Sea. He saved their lives and, by implication, he judged and killed the Egyptians who were pursuing his people. We see this, something similar in how often it's repeated that he judged what he, what he did to the people across the Jordan under the leadership of Sihon and Og, how the Lord executed them. As he saved his people, he, he, we see him executing justice against the enemies of his people and saving the lives of his people. The Lord has the power of life and death in his hand. And these stories of salvation through judgment are multiplied as we go on through the book of Joshua. And so by this point in the story, we can add to Egypt and we can add to Sihon and Og. We can ha- add Jericho and Ai to those stories. The God, the God of Israel has the power of life and death in his hand. He saved the lives of Israel. He's punished the lives of the Jerichoites and the people of Ai. He saved the life of of Rahab as he punished those who lived around her. When Rahab confesses her faith in the Lord, she confesses Israel's God as the Lord your God. He is the God in the heavens above and of the earth beneath. This is a universal claim about God's authority. He's the creator God, the God of all things, the God of things visible and invisible. The God of Israel is the creator and judge of all people. He is the author of life, and so he has the power and authority over life and death. This aspect of God's character is also reflected in his people. So the Lord's power over life and death shows up in God's people. 
We can see this in an interesting way in Joshua in that the Lord works his salvation and judgment through his people. So when the people who live in Canaan talk about what the Lord did, they can't separate what the Lord did from what Joshua and Israel did. Listen again to Rahab. For we heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. So pay attention there. What the Lord did and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan. You see how she conflates the Lord's action with the actions of the people of Israel. You can't really divide the two. The Lord worked through his people so that the, the people of Canaan attribute to the Israelites what the Lord has done. So this, this power and attribute of the Lord over life and death is, is carried out through his people as they make this conquest of Canaan. And we know that the people make this conquest of Canaan only because the Lord is the one doing the work. What I'm trying to help you see is that as we define the Lord and we understand him as the power of life and death, we come to see something about his people, right? The Lord's people are those who faithfully embrace and rejoice in his power over life and death. The Lord's identity shapes the people's identity. In Israel's case, it shapes the way that they carried out this conquest of Canaan. We can say this something, something about this is true of even the church, right? As we, as we proclaim the gospel, God is pleased to work life-saving power. As, as people of, the people of God are growing in grace and as sinners are saved. The dead come to life as the church proclaims the gospel. The Lord works through his people. The Lord's identity as the giver of new life works out through his people. So the Lord's identity and the people's identity are, are complementary. Now, the nature of God's enemies is revealed in how they respond to the Lord's power over life and death. So remember back to the, the way the citizens of Jericho tried to treat the spies. They knew that the Israelite spies were there. They thought, well, we can thwart God, the God who has overcome all of these amazing obstacles in Egypt. We can thwart him by capturing these spies. So they, the king of Jericho sent, sent his own men out to try to capture the spies. It was a fruitless effort, but they thought they could do it. And then in, when, when Israel does cross the Jordan and they're on the, they're on the plains of Jericho, Jericho tries to shut itself up. No one can go in or out. And they seem to think that through this method of just sort of hiding in the city, they can avoid God's judgment. Verses 1 and 2 of Joshua 9 show us yet another approach to, or another response to God's power, right? As soon as all these kings that are listed here in verses 1 and 2 heard this, heard of what God had done to Ai and Jericho, Verse 2, they gathered as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. So their response to the Lord's power over life and death is to try to fight it, to assemble an army, and to go out and fight. Now the Gibeonites don't join that coalition. It would have been a natural thing for them to have done. But when they hear, we see in verse Three, when the Gibeonites heard what Joshua had done to Jericho, they, for their part, acted 
with cunning. So now we have kind of yet another response to the revelation of God's power. It doesn't look like Israel's embrace of God's power and joy in God's power. It doesn't look at all in the same way like the fighting spirit of their fellow kings. It's not even quite what Jericho did. It's something else. Now, in a sense, all these people are reacting to something real, right? God's power has been on display in their midst and in the, and Israel's coming into the land, right? There's, there's no true skeptics here, right? They all see something is happening and a decision is being forced on us. We've heard of what they did in Egypt. We've heard what they did across the Jordan. We've heard what they've done on our own side of the Jordan, And so some kind of response is demanded. So you could say in maybe a very simplistic or or basic sense, they had a kind of faith that the Lord was acting. Israel is a danger and a threat to them. But it's clearly not saving faith in the case of these kings that want to fight against Israel, right? But what do we say about the, the people of Gibeon? This weird third category, right? They think that they can somehow escape the fate of Ai and escape the fate of Jericho through, the Lord, through their own cleverness and cunning. They could maybe negotiate the Lord's power in some way. They, they can find some middle way, perhaps, between Israel's full embrace and Canaan's rejection. Now, this, these, all these responses hold out to us a question. How do I respond to this reality, this reality that the Lord holds the power of life and death? The Lord has authority over my life. He holds it in his hand. You know, am I trying to resist that power in some way? Do I think I can hide from it, shut myself in into a walled city? Or do I have some clever plan to extract from God what I want? One of the persistent sinful ways that all people respond to the Lord is we try to get some blessing from the Lord while refusing submitting to him. We try to get something from him but not obey him. To get something from him but not trust him. We want life from God. We may even want to think of ourselves as godly. But at the end of the day, what we want to do is to rule ourselves. The scriptures proclaim the Lord as the creator of all things, of heaven and earth, of things seen and unseen. The scriptures proclaim the Lord as your creator, your author, and your ruler. The Christian confession is that God is the judge of all people. And he holds our lives in his hand, our our physical lives and our spiritual lives. So this first truth forces us to ask the question, Do I joyfully embrace the Lord's power and authority over me? Or am I trying to resist it in some way? Am I trying to negotiate it according to my own cleverness? Well, again, that's what the Gibeonites do. They responded to their knowledge, this knowledge. The Lord is on the move. They've heard of his works. They responded with this act of cunning. The Gibeonites' cunning plan is to make themselves appear as if 
they're not from the land of Canaan, right? They've come a long way. So again, let's listen to verses 4 and 5. And listen to how much the phrase worn out is used. They took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, and with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes, and all their provisions were dry and crumbly. They gather up all these worn out things to appear before Israel as if they've come a long way, and I think to get their pity. Through this trick, they believe that they can have their lives spared and they can have peace with God's people. That's no small thing, right? We've already seen how the Lord works through his people. And so by getting peace with God's people, they can have peace with God in a sense. It seems like that's what Rahab was asking for, an oath, right? And and the, the men of Israel swore an oath to her. What's missing from the Gibeonite plan is any idea that the Lord who is the one who has power over life and death is also a God who is abundant in grace. They're missing that key part of God's character. They have a very shadowy, perverted view of God. They see God as maybe the executor of justice, and if they can just avoid that justice, they're fine. But they don't seem to have any concept of his grace. I think that's what we're meant to see by all of the, those re- repeated references to their worn-out stuff. They thought this was the way to appear to Israel. And I think we're meant to read this in light of an earlier passage from the book of Deuteronomy. So really, in terms of kind of Bible pages, it would just be a few, right? If you go from here to Deuteronomy chapter 29, in verse 5, we'd find this. The Lord is, or Moses is reminding Israel of all that the Lord has done to them. And the Lord says, I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out, and your sandals have not worn off your feet. You have not eaten bread, and you have not drunk wine or strong drink, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. So again, the, the kind of the surface level point of the Canaanite trick is to look like they're not from Canaan. That's kind of their objective one. Just appear in the category, not part of Canaan. If you can do that, you have a chance at a treaty. But they chose these props to make it look like they've been on a long journey, right? You see three times in the text, there's a reference to a journey. And the very last time at the end of verse 13, they call it a very long journey. You know, I think functionally, they're saying to Israel, look, we're just like you. You've been on a long journey from Egypt. We've been on a long journey too. Let's join up. You know, let's travel a ways together. Or maybe they think that the Israelite God is the God of long journeys, right? He'll spare us if we're one of these pilgrim people. But when they pop, when they, when they use these kind of worn out props, it's clear that they have no idea what Israel's God is really like. They have no idea what Israel really is or what their God is all about. Again, because of Israel's relationship with this God of abundant grace, they had no worn out clothes or sandals, right? They hadn't drunk wine on their journey. They had no worn out wineskins that were patched and mended. They hadn't even eaten bread. God had miraculously sustained them with manna. And so when the Gibeonites dressed up to look like what they may have thought Israel would be like, they look like a dime store cowboy, right? They've got the hat and the jeans and the, and the, and the boots, 
But nobody's mistaking that dime store cowboy for someone who just got off the trail, right? Gibeon's attempt to trick their way into survival reveals they have a fundamental failure in their knowledge of God. They may have some sense of God's power. He's a threat to them, but they're completely ignorant of his grace. They couldn't imagine a God like Israel's God who provided for them every step of the way, who extended grace to them, a God who saves sinners. And so they come up with this clever plan to trick their way into God's family. They misunderstood God's grace. We're going to continue on with Gibeon in a second, but for now I want us to pause and go back to Israel's story because Israel, I think, has their own misunderstanding of God's grace, their own kind of theological breakdown in this passage. So I want to pick up at verse 14 and read down through verse 21. We see how Israel responds to the Gibeonite trick. So we read, so the men, this is the men of Israel now, the men took some of their provisions, that's Gibeon's provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. At the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Shephirah, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to all the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation just as the leaders had said of them. That last bit about cutters of wood and drawers of water is something that, again, picks up from Deuteronomy. It seemed to be an understanding that this is a way that foreigners could serve in Israel. They could serve in these menial capacities of cutters of wood and drawers of water. So this is kind of the slot that you can fit the Gibeonites in if, if you do let them live. But I, I said earlier that the, this Gibeonite trick is something we need to read in light of earlier Old Testament passages. So we read this, this passage about the worn out clothes and, and Israel's clothes not being worn out. But I think we also need to read, about, or read this passage in light of other earlier texts. So the one that Pastor Tim read for us in God's call to Abram, right? This great call of grace that God calls this man out of idolatry to him all of grace. Not because of anything Abram had done. And Abram follows God's call. He's a man of faith. He's the, he's the archetype of faith, right? All examples of faith go back to Abram when he leaves Ur and goes to Canaan. But as soon as we see God's grace in Abram's faith, we see Abram lapse into uh, his own, living by his own wisdom, right? He, he flees Israel to go to, to Egypt. He lies about the identity of his wife. And then of all people in the Bible to be rebuked by, he's rebuked by Pharaoh, right, of Egypt. This is the, the last person we'd expect any godly person to be rebuked by. But Abram is rebuked by Pharaoh for his lie. So baked into Israel's story, we have 
God's grace, Israel's faith, but Israel's failure. And this isn't the last time we see this clearly in Israel's story. Even within the first books, the first chapters of Israel's story in Genesis, we see Abram doing this, uh, this trick, Isaac repeating the same trick except with Abimelech of the Philistines. And then we see kind of the, the trick of all tricks, Jacob inventing a costume to trick his blind father into giving him the blessing. And that, that story is especially relevant to Joshua chapter 9 because once Isaac re, re, understands that he has been tricked, he refuses to go back on the blessing. Right? He realizes he's made a, a blessing in the name of the Lord upon Jacob and there's no going back. It's something that his people will imitate here. So though I said that Gibeon is kind of like a dime store cowboy version of Israel, there's another sense in which they are a really good imitation of Israel, Right? Going all the way back to their founding fathers, Israel has often misunderstood God's grace. Israel has often tried to obtain God's grace through their own cunning. And now here in chapter 9 of Joshua, all this is kind of being thrown in in their faces. Kind of a reminder of, do you realize where you've come from? Now you'd hope maybe Israel would have some sense of this, right? They would understand... Wait, we're a people of grace. We're only here because God has graciously sustained us. He delivered us from, from slavery. He provided for us through the wilderness. We had this miraculous crossing at the Jordan. We've just tasted the bitter fruit of going ahead with our own plans at AI and being judged. So maybe we should consult with the Lord about these strangers among us. But they don't do that. They take the provisions, and they did not ask counsel from the Lord. Last week, we re- remarked that it's, it's not typical in Joshua to get these kind, of, these kind of omniscient narrator judgments about Israel, right? We're often kind of in the story with them so that we don't know what's going on, but, but that's not true in this story. We know from the outset, Gibeon's pulling a trick, and we know here, Israel did not consult with the Lord. They relied on on their own assessment, what they could see and feel. They didn't seek counsel from the Lord. And they reveal how limited their wisdom is. They make a covenant with these inhabitants of Canaan, which is a direct violation of one of God's commands about the conquest. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 2, God told them, don't make any covenants with the people of the land. Show them no mercy. In verses 16 through 18, then Israel discovers the trick and there's this disagreement about what to do. If you kind of read between the lines, it appears that some wanted to just go ahead and and violate the covenant and just kill these people, right? But it appears that the leaders of the congregation are adamant that, that, that they should let them live because of the oath that they'd made before the Lord. But we realize Israel has now put themselves in, in a conundrum, right? They they only have a choice now of violating God's command. They either have to violate God's command against breaking oaths, which was, was kind of a combination sin. It's both lying, right? If you break an oath, you've lied. But because they made an oath in the Lord's name, it would be like taking the Lord's name in vain. So that's kind of option A. We could, we could lie and take the Lord's name in vain and slaughter the Gibeonites, or we, we must keep our oath and thereby break the command of the Lord about showing the Canaanites no mercy. 
about making covenants. So we're, we're kind of stuck between two bad choices. By the end of verse 18, it seems that the, the let them live camp has ruled the day, but it's also clear there's still this grumbling. The congregation of Israel isn't happy with this decision. But the overall point of this part is pretty clear. Israel should have consulted the Lord, right? This isn't just sort of a, a good idea or a wise way to live. It's if you are a people of grace, you are a people who are to live by God's word. God's people don't simply live by what we can see and touch and understand and that what we can make sense of with our own wisdom. We know we're limited and we're sinful and we know how gracious the Lord is. He's overcome all that in miraculous ways. And so God's people of grace turn to him. People of grace consult the Lord. You know, we're going back to this definition of God and definition of his people. If God is a gracious God, his people are those who turn to the Lord and seek his counsel. So before committing yourself to something or someone, ask, does the Lord have anything to say about this? Now for Israel, it probably looked like having Joshua pray to the Lord. He was, sort of, he was their mediator at this point, right? He, and he had access to God. The Lord had been amazingly gracious. We said in, in the first sermon, one of the amazing headlines of Joshua, the book of Joshua, is Moses is dead, God still speaks to Israel through Joshua. So they have Joshua here, right? They have an access point to the Lord. They could have sought the Lord through Joshua. How do we today seek the Lord? I want you to see we seek the Lord's counsel by looking to his word, by prayer, and by listening to wise counsel from godly brothers and sisters, those people who know God's word and who know us. I think we need to make sure we keep all three of those things together when we think about seeking the Lord. I, one way we could make a mistake here, I think, would be to say that Joshua chapter 9 is really just a call to prayer. We should just pray to seek the Lord. Now, we should do that. Prayer is a part of this. And prayer is so crucial because prayer involves a, a humble submission to God, right? Prayer helps orient our hearts into a posture of willingness to listen to God. But where do we hear God speak? We hear God speak in his word. So here's how I think how this should work. Through prayer, we till up the soil of our hearts so that we are ready for the seed of God's word to be planted in it. Prayer should point us to God's word because that's where God speaks. And secondarily, we can say the Lord speaks to us through his people, those people who love the Lord and who love you. Now, this counsel that we get from other people will rarely, I think, look like a direct command. The brother or sister says, hey, you do this. I have omniscient wisdom and you do this. That's not what it looks like. You know, unless there's a clear, thus saith the Lord in the scriptures that you kind of maybe missed or you're ignoring for whatever reason, that's not how the counsel usually looks. As a matter of fact, the, a godly brother or sister is going to be very careful not to tell you something to do if it's not clear in Scripture. But a, a godly brother or sister can help you see 
is there something in this that I'm not seeing? They can help you see, is, is, am I pursuing this good thing for a bad reason? They can help you expose the things that are in your own heart. Or they might be able to identify some aspect of Scripture's teaching that, that you've just overlooked in, in your reasoning about a situation. When we fail to seek the Lord's counsel, we can blind ourselves to people or situations that we should avoid. People or situations that will put us in ethical conundrums. It strikes me here that it is relevant that, that Israel makes a covenant with Gibeon. I think those, those situations are where we put ourselves at most ethical risk, you might say. When, when you've got to bind yourself, you know, so thinking about who you marry, you're going to make a covenant before God with that person. You want to have wisdom about should you do that, right? Even, even jobs that you might take or business partnerships you might enter into, it's good to, to ask some, some questions. Does the Lord have any warning or advice for me here? Should it, how, do a, how would a godly brother evaluate my own heart as I think about this opportunity that's before me? What sacrifices will I have to make to pursue this? So those, those situations in which we're going to bind ourselves to, in some way are those where I think we especially want to seek wise counsel. But we need to see that we seek the Lord because we know that he's a gracious God and his ways leads to joy. His ways leads to joy even if he calls us to something hard. His ways leads to joy even if they call, he calls us to say no to a good opportunity. His ways are still good. Had Israel had a greater sense of God's abundant grace they would not have neglected to seek his counsel. They would have seen whatever God calls us to do with these Gibeonites, it will be good. So the Lord is full of grace and God's people of grace seek his counsel. As we define the Lord, we define ourselves as God's people. So that's Israel's misunderstanding of grace because they didn't understand God's gracious rule in their lives. They didn't seek him. But let's now turn back to Gibeon. After the discovery of their trick, Gibeon gets another chance to reckon with the Lord in a confrontation between Joshua and the Gibeonites. So let's read verses 22 through 27. Joshua summoned them and he said to them, Why do you deceive us, saying, We are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants. Cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, Because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. I want you to note there are some changes in Gibeon here. They're operating here not with lies, right? They're no longer pressing into this ruse that we've come a long way. That's all been exposed somehow. And notice that they're no longer referencing 
Sihon and Og, right? These two funny names. These are these kings on the other side of the Jordan that Moses had led the people of Israel to conquer. Right now they cite Ai and Jericho. It's a little more truthful to the facts, right? Because they're people of the land, right? They're, they're not too far away from Jericho and Ai. But the key change is in verse 25. They say, and now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do, do it. To do to us, do it. Note here that they begin by acknowledging they are in Joshua's hand. Now this is important because whenever God has told Joshua and Israel, go and conquer this people, he said, I have given them into your hand. So in some miracle, Gibeon has understood this or they just use this language, but it's significant, right? They, they recognize this reality. We are in your hand. We are in the hands of our God. We are in your hand. This is the truth about them, right? They're coming to reckon with it in a new way. Their words reflect a theological reality. And then they build on that. They say, whatever seems good and right in your sight, Joshua. They appeal to the goodness and rightness of the Lord's servant here. They're in God's hand. They have, they have no leg to stand on, right? Their, their lies have been exposed. They're no longer trying to play any tricks. They throw themselves on the goodness and rightness of God's servant. And we can't say what was in Gibeon's hearts when they first hatched their plan. But in some amazing way, by, I think, God's grace, they're brought now to this point. This point of throwing themselves upon the goodness and righteousness of God. I mean, this is a picture of faith, isn't it? And God grants the Gibeonites the blessing of serving at his own altar. That's where, that's where they end up. And that's an interesting kind of pattern or a, a trajectory here. When, when Israel first, or we first hear about them spoken of as servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water, it's for the whole congregation. But then as Joshua begins to speak to them, they, they're now serving the house of the Lord. And then finally, the altar of the Lord. They keep moving closer to where God is. In verse 23, Joshua calls this a curse. But I think we're meant to see that it's, it's better to be cursed in this way than to be blessed with the blessings that Canaanites have to offer. In this final exchange, though, we see how far off we can be about God. The Gibeonites thought they could connive their way into survival and life with God's people. But they had no idea of how truly gracious God is. They didn't need to scheme and trick to save themselves. All they needed to do was to surrender and to throw themselves on the goodness and righteousness of God. Now we know that God had commanded the Israelites to show the people of Canaan no mercy. But we also know that he had shown mercy to Rahab, right? And he had shown Rahab, mercy to Rahab, as she turned her, backs, her, her back on Jericho. And as she acknowledged that salvation came from the Lord. She appealed to God's people, save my life. And God did it. I think we have every reason to believe, had the Gibeonites done the same, 
and said from the get-go, we, we surrender. We recognize life lies with your God. Do with us what you will. If they had started with it, I, I believe the Lord would have honored that too. But he clearly honors it here. If we were to read on into chapter 10, we would find that the, the, the Gibeonites appealed to Joshua to keep this treaty, and the Lord says, go, I've given them into your hand. Go protect the Gibeonites. Go slaughter the kings of Canaan who have risen up against them. The Gibeonites find that the Lord provides grace and mercy to those who repent. Despite their misguided start, despite the way they tried to connive and trick their way into God's grace, they find it here as they repent. They end up here as servants at the altar of the Lord, praising God in his courts. So let the Gibeonites teach you, but be careful the lesson that you learn. Right? The lesson is not the Lord that you can trick your way into God's salvation. The, the lesson is not that God's kind of a pushover and that he just doesn't care that much. No, the lesson here is that our Lord is gracious. It's not our tricks that save us. It is only by the goodness and rightness of God that anyone is saved. That's why the gospel is such good news. Because the Lord does not compromise his righteousness in saving us. Christ, the righteous one, bears the penalty of sin. Because he is true man and true God, he pays sin's price for us. That is why we can throw ourselves on the goodness and rightness of God and be saved. How often do we try to play games with God? We think, I'll just make sure and read my Bible every day and God will be pleased with me. Or I'll, I'll avoid getting angry. I'm going to go a week without cursing and the Lord will be pleased with me. Those things don't honor the Lord. That's the dime store cowboy version of Christianity. When we dress ourselves up in those rags, we just are proving how ignorant we are of God's grace. Instead, come to God honestly and humbly. You know, Gibeon was brought to this point. Their sins were exposed, right? The gig is up. Confess your sin. Throw yourself on the goodness and righteousness of God. And when you do, you find God to be the abundant provider. Isn't that how Christ reveals God to us in, in his teaching? Right? Don't worry about what you will wear or what you will put on. Look at the lilies of the field and the birds of the air, how the Lord clothes and cares for them. When you come to God through Christ, you will find him as your abundant provider. He will clothe you with the righteousness of Christ. He will feed you with spiritual food that you will never exhaust. And he doesn't neglect our physical needs either, does he? He says, seek these things and all these other things will be added to you. The Lord is our God of abundant grace. Gibeon slowly discovered that. And ultimately, the Israelites realized that too. The Lord doesn't punish them, with, punish them for their treaty with Gibeon. It's, it's not hard to imagine a scenario in which he did punish them, right? We, we saw him punish them for breaking his command with the devoted things at Ai, right? 
But the Lord bears with their weakness that they were, they were duped by these Gibeonites. He vindicates Joshua's solution to the problem in this treaty. He, he honors it. He doesn't lead Israel into destruction among these Canaanite kings, but he, he gives them great victories. And really, chapter, 10, or chapter 9 begins this, this chain of victories that goes all the way through chapter 12. So as we reflect on Gibeon and Israel, we see two groups of people who both misunderstood the abundant grace of God. In a sense, they needed the same thing. They needed to understand that God is a God of grace. He had been gracious to Israel from the very beginning in calling Abram, their their forefather, out of idolatry to himself. Time and time again, he's overlooked their failures as they've tried to connive and negotiate their way into his his good graces. Here, even with Gibeon, they see a new, fresh example. We serve a gracious God. To me, this calls to mind Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In that chapter, he lists this long list of things that he says, if you do these things, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. So he lists drunkenness, sexual immorality, homosexuality, theft, greed. No one who practices those things will inherit the kingdom of God, he says. But then he says, but such and such were some of you. Our hope is not in our cleverness. It's not in any of our sinful identities. Our hope is that we've been washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's what Paul goes on to say after, and such were some of you. You've been washed. That is our hope. We serve a gracious God who, who, who takes us in all of our sin and he covers our sin through the work of Christ. So God's people are defined by our God. We are those who know the God who is powerful and graceful. He is the God who delivers us from death through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is the God who clothes his people. He's the God who meets every need. And we've already confessed this truth about God, haven't we, in our, our confession of faith, that God is this great provider, and he turns every evil thing that we experience in this veil of tears to our good. And he is able to do this because he is almighty God and he is willing and he desires to do this because he is our faithful father. What a glorious truth that we get to confess. This defines who we are. The people of our powerful God and our gracious God. Joshua chapter 9 calls us, don't trust in any distorted view of God. Don't imagine you can thwart the plans of God as he has power over your life and death. And don't think you can trick your way into God's kingdom. But come before the Lord honestly, humbly, confessing your sin and throwing yourself on the goodness and righteousness of God and receive his abundant grace. Let's pray. Father, your ways are so good, and it is our joy to confess that you are our almighty God who is able to save 
and our faithful Father who desires to save and turn all things to our good. Help us, Father, to entrust ourselves to you. We pray that you would, you would ruin and, and confuse all of our silly schemes by which we, we try to get things from you and instead grant us humble faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.